So really my first question is to Alana and, um, and then she'll take it up from there and ask uh, Christian questions. The first question is, you know, why did you choose Christian? I gave you a whole little uh, grouping of people. Alana's a lawyer as well as being a curator. Um, she did a fabulous honours degree on private museums, which I've got and I've bound. It's, it was really outstanding. I think it should have been a master's. And then did a master's at Goldsmiths in London, which is one of the two best art schools in the world now. So why, Alana? Um, well, I guess Goldsmiths is a good place to start. Originally, when you invited me to do the show, I was still studying there, and um, Christian was studying at Oxford at the time. And I like the idea of working with an artist who was from my generation, who had also chosen to go and study overseas um, and to immerse himself in 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 a institution which which is really um, quite well known and and. Um, take that on their shoulders and um, go forth from there. So I guess that was really my starting point. But also Christian has produced such an incredible body of work over the last two decades. And um, But each and every work has so many different references that can be drawn on. And for a curator and a young curator, that's really exciting. And there are a lot of disparate research areas that I have from law to fashion to art and, and to curatorial theory and I really felt like I could draw out all of those different strands of my research and, and, and bring them together by looking at Christian's work. And what would, what would you like to ask Christian now? You, I know you prepared some questions. I suppose I could say, uh, Christian, how did you feel about the Collection Plus show? <laughs> Alana, you know, got together with you. Yeah, right. I mean, it was interesting because it was a very different sort of approach, like a sort of curatorial model, I think, because with my own work, I'm sort of quite controlling over how I represent Mm. my, you know, I'm really, I mean, I work pretty pretty much in isolation. So I think there's that sort of interesting um, model was to actually you know, incorporate not only your sort of own curatorial perspective, but also the perspective of, of like you said, the private collections as well, which adds a sort of another dimension to the um, to the um, uh, curatorial thematic of the show. But also, it's like not particular. This is the first time I think that my work's been sort of. Um, sort of curated in this way and that's one sort of aspect or one approach to my practice which in this in this case is the intersection between sort of fashion and art so for me it's that it's interesting to see that sort of teased out in my own work because it's not necessarily something that I would if I was curating a show of my own work the work that I would select so um yeah I mean it's an honor and thank you so much for the invitation to to um to you know be involved and to have my work shown here so yeah Oh, I was going to add to that. That yeah. I mean, in that sense, it's it's not it's not a retrospective show. It's not no. a survey show. No. The the works come from very broad periods of of your practice so far. Um, but there's quite a strong direction in that. And I think, Jean, if if I may be so presumptive as to say, that's why you've invited a curator to curate this show exactly. and not just the artist and work with collections. Well, we could. I mean, with the. Um the new commissions, we, we don't have a curator because really what we do there is we choose the artist and I'm the final vetoing 
person. It sometimes comes from me and sometimes the idea comes from someone else. And there's a list of artists of interest and uh, we've got a board, an advisory board that comprises all sorts of interesting people from Doug Hall to John Caldor to uh, Claire Roberts who brings the Chinese perspective to bear on the situation to the Nakayamas, uh, Akira and Tomoko who bring the Japanese perspective So uh, to Sam Mears who brings another perspective, you know so, but we don't have a curator because once the artist is chosen, they then give us a submission for a completely new work, and we then work with them in determining how possible this is, and you know whether the budget is adequate, and and uh, you know how the thing is going to be. Um, realised really so I don't know what all of you would call that but it's it's a kind of curatorial, it's partly curatorial but when it comes to selecting of some work from 20 years of practice, that's a different thing isn't it and um, you know I think allowing uh, curators young and old and experienced and less experienced and living in London and living, we've had a curator living in Cambodia you get, as Christian says, uh, a whole span of different perspectives. And that's, I mean, an artist who's good enough and he's more than good enough, outstanding, there's so many ways into the work. And not any one single person can find every single pathway. So what was on your mind when you were thinking of questions, well, speaking, Alana? Speaking well, of universities, yes. I mean, Christian, you've studied at the University of Queensland, RMIT in Melbourne, Das Arts University in Amsterdam. University of Southern Queensland. My, my art history lecture is actually, lecture is actually here. <laughs> How many years ago was it? At least 20. Yeah. Isn't that lovely to have made the connection again tonight? Mm. Um, and, of course, in Oxford. Um, have you noticed any differences in how being an artist is taught in Australia in comparison to overseas or similarities, I guess? Um, I mean, I didn't sort of... Um, I, my intention was... I mean, I was actually... The reason I ended up in Amsterdam in the first place, I did a Master of Theatre there at the um, Amsterdam School of Arts, but I ended up there sort of pretty much by... By accident, I ended up becoming sort of like the eleventh member of um, the Das Arts Group when they were doing a residency at the Victorian College of the Arts, and I was working there as a sessional teacher. And then the director was like, "Well, you know, um, would you be interested in applying to, you know, to um, to undertake the Master of Theatre?" And I, I applied, and then I ended up getting accepted. So that took me to sort of to Amsterdam for three years, and then. I mean, that was like, I was complete fish out of water. I mean, my work had a sort of performative aspect to it, but it wasn't, I definitely hadn't, be, I wasn't a sort of seasoned sort of performer. You know, it may be in my social life I am, but not not in a sort of, um, not in a sort of official, official sort of, um, sort of theatre kind of um, mode. And I think the sort of, the, um, the, um, the kind of expectation was that all the mentality was to sort of rip them down and sort of build them up again um, uh, approach. approach. So I sort of got there sort of, you know, with, with no sense, you know, completely out of my own sort of context and in that environment and just sort of told to sort of get out there and sort of make sort of performances. And we were literally just constantly making work and performing to the public mm -hmm. all the time. And that was an incredibly... Um, 
challenging sort of program, but it was also, um, I think I sort of learned a lot from that in terms of drawing on other aspects of my sort of creative process that perhaps I hadn't drawn on before. I mean, I remember one moment where we, my, I sort of did my first performance and the dramaturg at the school sort of said, I think that your performances are... And at that moment, I sort of thought, okay, you're going to really have to sort of work really hard if you're going to get sort of through this through this program. And so it was really stepping outside of my comfort zone and having to um, to be sort of to be challenged and to work, you know, um, in in an area that I wasn't sort of particularly um, aware of. So um, and moving on to Oxford. Yeah, and then, you know, my intention was just to move back home. And then I ended up applying for the Charles Perkins um, scholarship. Um, I had sort of thought that I'd sort of done most of my study by that point. And then my friend said, look, you should apply for it, see how you go. And then I applied, ended up having two phone interviews and then one in-person interview and then was awarded the scholarship. So I got back to the country, packed my bags and then went straight to Oxford. So, I mean, I've been really lucky in the sense that I've sort of landed on my feet wherever I've been. And I think when I was at Oxford, I when I took up my candidacy, it, it coincided with an Australian Research Council grant project, which was looking at the repatriation of photographs in European collections back to from back to Australia, from Europe, uh, from France, the Netherlands, um, Britain, and um, and Germany. So I sort of already had a context for my research project, and um, yeah. So that was. And so, I don't know if that answers the question. Yeah, yeah, and um, we bury our own, um, and specifically forgiveness of land, like, um, the headscarf. Why the headscarf? But you, you need to uh, remind everybody where it is. So which is we? Sure. So it's yeah. the first work in the exhibition. It's the. I guess the genesis for this exhibition. So it's As the you work come that's in on, on, the left, on the left, and yeah. it's in Jean and Brian Sherman's collection. Um, but it's also in a couple of other collections: the Latrobe University Art Collection, and uh, the Julia Chantelou and Andrew Rothery Collection, as well as Christian's own collection as well. So. Uh, what what I uh, chose to do was actually show all the editions of the work that are in collections side by side, which I don't think has been done before. But I sort of wanted to give the impression that um, while each of these collectors owns the work, they, they sort of own part of it in a sense. They don't sort of own it completely. They only own an edition and sort of ask people to consider, you know, what that really means if, if they're only owning an edition of a work rather than a, the work... In totem. You, have you got that? So there, so there are five editions, and all five of them are owned by different people. And if you have a look, they all frame differently. And we had, because they're owned by different people who are hanging them in their homes in different ways and so on. So we've arranged that. It was a bit of a worry for us. How do you place these works it's going to be look like a scrambled egg in the end um and so we but as it turned out everybody had either black or white frames and they were balanced so when you go and have a look as you come in on your left you'll see there's a black frame which is ours the first one then a white frame then a black frame then a white frame and the only way i can tell which is ours is because i know exactly what my frame looks like because yeah. <laughs> I chose it <laughs> and it's slightly different you know, not dramatically but it's interesting, isn't it talk about Oxford I think everyone is just so thrilled with the idea of an indigenous artist 
from Australia, going to Oxford University, you know, I mean, hundreds of years of tradition and getting a PhD. I think it's just the most marvellous thing. Talk about it a bit. Well, it was, thank you. <laughs> it was, um, well, my research sort of project was, yeah, like, like I said, it was part of the Australian Research Council grant, um, sort of fell sort of underneath that sort of umbrella, I guess. And for me, it was more about, you know, I'm a, I'm a researcher, but I'm a sort of, my work really comes from a sort of a state of kind of meditation and reflection. And so I sort of went into the museum on different occasions and actually just spent, you know, extended periods of time what you know looking through the collection and that ended up sort of permeating the work that I made and so in a sense it is a kind of um it is a a form of research but perhaps it doesn't it doesn't fit with into a sort of traditional um uh sort of art historical um approach um and you know, I just really rendered myself to allow the collection to sort of become a sort of directorial force in the, the body of work that would be made. Is the Rivers Museum Oxford University? Yeah, yes. yeah. T- tell Well, the Pitt Rivers Museum is an, you know, it's an internationally renowned museum. It's basically a museum of what museums were like at the turn of the last century. So none of the objects are actually um, sort of ordered by um, culture and region. They're just ordered by um, object. So there will just be one object, one, you know, uh, cabinet that's full of baskets and another, you know, cabinet that's full of musical instruments. A lot of the um, material in the collection actually comes from the Queen's Trust because it's been seized at border protection so people think bringing things into the country so it's this real mishmash of 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 different kinds of um of um of objects from from all over the world and it's also yeah like i said a museum of perhaps what museums were like before you know a sort of cabinets of curiosity um and i was really looking at the sort of from a theoretical point of view i was looking at the 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 um the history or lineage of artists who'd worked with the museum from Duchamp to Andy Warhol, Joseph Kosuth, um, James Luna, Fred Wilson, Renee Green, um, Hans Hacker. And I was sort of placing myself within that sort of historical sort of artistic lineage of artists who'd work at the intersection between art and museum. And my project was looking at ways of... of um, employing the archive as a kind of directorial force without re-exhibiting the material and re-inscribing it into the same sort of colonial history that it had come from in terms of the museum as a, as a, a hegemonic structure from the West as the dominant, um, dominant historical narrative and then other cultures falling into that. So for me, it was really important that the work was able to operate inside the museum, that it could be a window um, into the collection um, a doorway into the future, and also something that could sort could have sort of um, operate in the present as well. So, um, <clears throat> after it was um, after the show was exhibited at the Pitt Rivers Museum, it then went on to be shown in New York, um, Singapore, Melbourne, Sydney, um, Virginia. Uh, it was at Campbelltown Art Centre, and. Um, somewhere else but I just can't think of it at the moment so it really did exceed my expectations in terms of where it would go and, um, and the reception of the work and now people at Oxford are writing about it as you know undergrads are writing about the series so it's opened up a discussion about how we inter- interact with these collections and how we do it in a way that sort of respects sort of um, traditional 
um, uh, customs and beliefs as well. Wow. So I guess I'm, I'm interested in discussing that particular work that starts off the exhibition, the headscarf, why that particular object? I mean, was that in the photographs that were in the Pitt Rivers collection? Well, there were sort of different sort of elements that were drawn from the... There are sort of very visual, very obvious references. For example, in that work, I'm wearing a headscarf and in the, in the, in the Pitt Rivers Museum collection, there are actually images of people wearing scarves in that, in that way. Wearing scarves? Scarves. Scarves wrapped in that way. Um, which I thought was just a striking sort of visual kind of um, sartorial sort of aspect of the collection and perhaps something that people wouldn't necessarily think about that material because it really just traversed sort of atmospheres from being sort of deeply ethnographic to sort of quite playful because there are actually portraits of people who could afford to get their own images taken sort of into the latter part of the 18th century. People then had money and were actually getting their own images taken and that's perhaps not something that people would think about a sort of historical sort of archive like that. So... Um, yeah, so that was a really obvious reference, but I also drew from other aspects of the collection. So for me, my work's always been a sort of, you know, it's about the sort of, it's about the kind of zeitgeist. It's about, it is kind of autobiographical. And I would say that it's, um, but they're not self-portraits because I think they're, they're kind of built images rather than, you know, an image of me trying to reflect some aspect of my own sort of personality. I think it's more about sort of, that's how I sort of organize kind of images, I think. Um, and so there's an ethno sort of autographic approach to the archive, which is about sort of reflection and meditation. And so the aspects of the collection from the monochrome palette to the um, ideas of the decorative, the ornate, the composition, and even just the portrait image is a reoccurring theme in the collection as well. In every collection, I would yeah, say. Yeah, in almost. every collection, yeah. Yes. And actually, when I was researching your works, I noticed that there was quite a few different series that had Indigenous-style patterns in them, and it kept on kind of popping up. So 2002 with Black's Palace, we've got the... Um, jumpers that are that are in the exhibition as well, um, which have the kangaroo and the boomerang on them, which have Ayers Rock on them, and there's Tiwi Jumper. But then um, moving forward to your Tree of Knowledge performance in 2013, again, you're stripping off layers of hoodies, which have these Indigenous patterns on them once again. Um, was that is that sort of a conscious um, recurring motif that you keep coming back to, or would you say it's more of a subconscious elements here works. Well, I was just drawn to those materials based on the sort of the the kind of iconography and the actual sort of the, the design of them. I think I like the formality of the kind of arranged um, sort of the patterning. Um, and I mean, for example, the hoods that I'm wearing in Tree of Knowledge, they were the material I got, I got from Clegg's in Melbourne, which is a sort of fabric store and then I just was like oh wow these are amazing fabrics get that material then I was actually given money by the um uh by Das Arts by the Amsterdam School of Arts and then I had them made in China so they were sort of they Dutch money Australian material Chinese labor so they became a kind of metaphor of my sort of itinerant existence and someone who who sort of lives in many worlds yeah it's a metaphor for the globalized world it right is, I yeah. mean it's uh, it's almost everybody's world nowadays. Um, go on, Elana. Um, well, let's move on to a different topic. Um, your videos, um, a lot of them have uh, your songs in them, which you've recorded in your father's language, the Bidjara language. Um, 
but you don't include a translation. There's no English translation when there you watch it. There is in this one, isn't there? Um, in, in some, in, yes, this but one. In, 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 in general, you sort of stay away from directly translating the works as such. Mm-hmm. Um, do you want to expand on that? Yeah, I mean, I think because I mean that was just a process of sort of trial and error, and I think in the in the works, I sort of um, in the beginning, I sort of thought, well, maybe it's important to sort of to translate them so it gives an idea in terms of the kind of the way that I've incorporated the text, and then I sort of thought, well, actually, that sort of seems quite sort of didactic to sort of say almost as if I'm trying to teach people how to speak Bidra, which I'm not. Mm-hmm. So for me, it was much more about getting people to to Im- engage with the work on a, on a sonic and visual level rather than on a sort of um, didactic sort of, um, you know, pedagogic sort of um, approach where it's like I'm trying to teach you Bidra. Actually, the you know, the, the power of those works, I think, is that um, our language is is considered an endangered language. It's it's considered an extinct language. But actually, for me, I thought, well, if one word of that language is being spoken somewhere in the world, then it's not a dying language. It's a living language. And I was interested in bringing it to life. And I think music's a great sort of way to to do that. Do you speak? Uh we grew up Bidger. speaking a kind of pidgin. My a father pidgin. grew up sort of speaking Bidra before he spoke English. But we sort of know, you know, um, just lots of, um, you know, Gamu is water and um, yes. Dukain is echidna and Bubain is um, goanna and sort of different words like that. So it's And did kind you of, write the text? Did you see the video as you came in? As you come in, it's on your right. And uh, th- these are opera singers, uh, Dutch opera singers. Am I right? Uh, one of them's a Dutch Baroque mm-hmm. opera singer, and then another one is a British, um, a British. sort of more classic sort of opera. But the, I singer. mean, they look Anglo-Saxon, blonde, blue-eyed uh, sort of people. Um, very, um, you know, Anglo-Saxon-looking, uh, standing in front of the viewer and singing in a language that one wouldn't recognise because we don't hear, um, Bijaru, Bijaru, Bijara. And and there is a a translation in this one. Mm -hmm. Yes, there is English underneath. Yeah, there's translations in two of them. And then Uh I think the one that I, the version that I have done, there's no translation. But, um, yeah, I think it was more that there was a kind of um I was interested in the lyric the lyricism of the language. I wanted that to be sort of the 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 the, the focal point of the work rather than the, the interpretation because then it to me it felt too um, too didactic. Too didactic yeah. But did uh, did you write who wrote the music? There are a combination of sort of historical archives. There was a dentist who worked in our area who actually learnt Bidra because a lot of the um, clients who were quite old at that time didn't speak English. So he learnt Bidra, but also a lot of the language comes from my father as well. So there are a bricolage of kind of historical archives and also um, a learnt language as well. But the sonic part, the music. I, I just sing them in my... I just, in garage band, I'll just literally play a loop and then I just sing over the top. And then I'll take that loop and then I take it to a trained musician and say, can you do your own version of this... Um, melody and then they will do the melody and then we will then record the soundtrack the vocals and then just the musical version then we give that to the opera singer with the written version so then they can do their own you know version of that over the top so it's astonishing it's very labor intensive (laughs) for a very short video work it's a drawing on a lot of different how are we going sir okay it's 22 
Two more questions, Alana. Questions. Well, I wanted to talk also about the other sculpture in the show. Yes. The um, uh, 3D printed resin sculpture, which is called All Revolutions Led by the Young. Um, it's quite a unique piece in the show. Um, why, why 3D printed resin and why, why now? Just because when I was making the We Bury Our Own series, I ended up sort of gravitating towards the um, minerals um, in the Pit Rivers and the Natural History Museum. And I sort of kept going back to certain objects and sort of back to different sort of materials. It wasn't a kind, you know, it wasn't I, I was walking around the museum with a pen and sort of taking notes on everything. I just let the museum kind of um, permeate the work rather than, and the crystals that I use, I ended up collecting quite a lot of them and they sort of took, took pride over everything else that I was using in the work. And then I thought, well, actually, there's such formal sculptural objects in themselves. These are the crystals. As you come in, you see them over the eyes. And then there's the black sculptural piece, which is a crystal-looking, shiny, yes, piece. Mm-hmm. And that just sort of led me back to, to sculpture, which was my sort of formal, you know, undergraduate training. It was in sculpture. And I just... They just sort of um, took priority sort of over everything else. And then I thought, well, actually, I like the sort of macro... Um, you know, the micro and then sort of taking that and amplifying it in a certain way. And I think Australian crystals aren't particularly known for being sort of these gorgeous okay. objects. Well, not the ones from the desert. They're just sort of brown and covered in dirt. So I, I like this idea of sort of excavation and sort of finding them and then polishing them back and amplifying them into these sort of um, quite sort of, you know, um, large-scale um crystal resin sculptures which are it's there's a whole process that goes into making these works which is you know they're um 3d scanned and then they're built in pieces and then they're sort of joined back together and then they're dipped in resin and then they're sort of polished back and so it's quite a sort of process to to um to even to make those works um can they be repeated in an edition uh, no, um, no, not, not really. Exactly no. the same. No. No. Well, I no. mean, you could, but it's. I mean, that. Yeah, it's an incredibly expensive process. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Should we start one more? We up one more. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> um, well, I mean, you're based in London now, and I think you've been based uh, outside of Australia for almost half your life now. Would you say? Around that, a quarter. (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, all all your works really reference Australia in some sense. Um, Why do you keep on coming back here? You know, if you're and but you're based overseas, you know. So why 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 still reference back here? Um, Well, I mean, I think it's just my that's just the 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 perspective that I see the world from. I think it would be unusual if that wasn't something that was that was in my work. But I think. I sort of draw on lots of different aspects and I think that sort of, I think the growing up in the military and moving from town to town and that, you know, obviously as a child that was something that was quite sort of difficult to grow up that way but then it's actually, as as a professional artist, it's actually served me quite well because it's made me sort of adaptable, it's made me, you know, able to move throughout the world and um, to be able to draw on the resources around me. I find that sort of, that feeling of being lost, I find that feeling of, going somewhere new um, is just, it's just in print, it's print, you know, yeah, it was drawn very early on, so that's just something of, that's just how I operate in the world, I think. I do too, so I understand that so well. (laughs) Um, I think we should open for questions, huh? 
Uh, but you've got to participate. I can't force you, but you really should. <laughs> Ask the questions that, um, that you feel. I mean, here's an indigenous Australian who's gone to Oxford, who's got a PhD. It's, it's an unusual situation who's produced a hugely important body of work, collected all through the country, you know, there, there've got to be questions about this. Here's Luca. Take the microphone. <laughs> just, just to kick it off. Thanks very much for the opportunity, all of you. Um, Christian, uh, the, the hoodie. I mean, c- clearly there's that sense of the hoodie as being, you know, the rebellious young youth. Of course, you didn't make any reference to that in this conversation. Correct. Or? Correct. I mean, you know, here's the hoodie. It was actually yeah, one of my right. questions, but I had no idea. It's kind of the signature, <laughs> the signature Christian Thompson, <laughs> yeah. and you're still doing it with kind of maps and things. Yeah, I mean, I actually, I mean, I sort of, um, it's a reoccurring theme, and I think there are different sort of themes that sort of reoccur throughout my sort of practice, but I also like the idea of cross-referencing yourself. I think it's kind of an interesting to revisit ideas and sort of push them further, and sometimes you're just not, done with something you sort of have to go back to it and you sort of keep pushing it further so for me I, I sort of like that I like that idea of, of of sort of reflecting on my own work and then sort of reigniting particular ideas especially if I feel like there there's still something more that is 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 possible with that so um yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I think people have really different perspectives on on that as a sort of icon or an icon, you know, a, a sort of image. I think some people associate it with rebelliousness. Some people think of it as a kind of ritualistic thing. So it it crosses all of these different kinds of um, of um, sort of different historical and contemporary sort of visual reference points. So I think that's why it's been such a a powerful. Um, you know, image, I think, in my work. But it's also a fashion, you know, I mean, it can be a fashion image, the hood. Um, but let's see, there's uh, Claire wants to ask. How did you deal Take, with yes. wearing a gown in Oxford compared to wearing a hoodie? <laughs> yeah, it was weird. I mean, I think the whole sort of experience, um, I sort of went there thinking, well, you either sort of you either go with this experience or or you you know resist resist it and so i just went with the went went with it really but um yeah i mean it's quite bizarre how i mean it's sort of full of its own rites and sort of rituals and all of a sudden you're wearing a gown and walking down the street with a sort of you know corsage on and you know and that feels like a very normal thing to do <laughs> or someone's you know speaking latin and then there's a, a you know a, a sort of um you know entourage of kind of dons walking into the dining hall and so there it, it was you know it is it really was like another world and i you know often would sort of go to london and feel like i just come from sort of pheasant shooting in the forest or something but um it was um you know and i think that's sort of part of the unique sort of aspect of, of being there is that it, it is another world it is sort of it is um it is um such a significant um uh institution it's um one of the oldest universities in the world so yeah. and also the display of objects and important objects from your um indigenous background in the pit rivers museum and we know how crowded and overwhelming and historical that museum is mm-hmm. how did you find studying those objects within that environment were you 
Well, I mean, the, the, well, the viewing rooms, I mean, the actual collection is sort of in the upstairs sort of part of the museum, so that's very quiet area. But there were lots of moments where I was just in the museum just looking at different objects. And I was actually sort of um, going sort of through the material, thinking about sort of the different things that had sort of inspired the We Bury Our Own series. And they sort of, they sort of range from sort of, um, you know... Um, Morris dancing outfits to minerals to um, Inuit sort of raincoats and all these different kinds of things. But they were, they were also sort of very s symbolic of my the people that I sort of connected with inside the institution as well. So I was very sort of supported. And I think the, the, the Pitt Rivers Museum were really, really amazing. They have an amazing research uh, program that goes with the museum. So they were so... You know, they were so excited to have an, you know, an artist working with a collection. And I think my sort of candidacy was also quite unusual because I was also a, a, I was already a professional, you know, artist when I got there. So when that's really unusual to sort of have a sort of funk, you know, operating practice and then also be a student at the same time. So I was making work and showing it while I was studying. So that was, you know, the research process is usually one that's quite sort of isolated, but mine was very public so that was that was very unusual as well and also because of the historical resonance because there had never actually been any aboriginal people you know ed, you know ed, enrolled at the university of oxford that was there was this all this interest that came from just having paul gray and i there at the same time as the first inaugural charlie perkins scholar so there was also that sort of that interest so i really didn't start studying until after the first year and then i sort of thought okay now i can start really getting into this so yeah that's why it's taken me so long <laughs> went to the museum and they actually i asked where you were and where you were studying and they were so excited to introduce me and show me the work your work there and that they did had you go there Claire? acquired or was the, they'd acquired the work yeah they acquired one work yeah and here's rodney uh, no sorry yeah oh. Jean, first of all, congratulations yeah. on putting on a, another magnificent um, Well, show. he's done the work. Yeah. I've done the searching, I suppose. I didn't have to search far. A lot of people found him before I did. <laughs> well, well, you add enormously to the cultural growth of this country. Uh, Chris, you, you remind me of the, the great Australian artists who, who went overseas like Sidney Nolan, Colin Lansley and all of that. I'm just interested in the, the sort of diaspora type life you might live there. Um, do you mix and, and interlink with other Australian artists or do you link with European artists? So what, what's a group, if there's anything that you interrelate with and in, get inspiration from and in turn inspire? Yeah, I mean, I sort of think, I think a lot of the people that I just sort of came into contact with were just through very organic sort of processes. And I think a lot of the people that I've been working with over the last couple of years in London are just people that I've met through other sort of networks. And I've built a kind of little working relationship with a group of people that I, you know, work have worked with over the last couple of years. So I think that, um, yeah, it, it's um, that's also been just... A sort of very organic sort of process in terms of who I've come into contact with, but I'm very open to 
to working with with other people and off you know those sort of conversations that I have or the sort of interactions that I have with other people or the things that sort of feed back sort of into the work um yeah I mean London puts me in a really weird kind of headspace it's not the easiest place in the world to be it's actually quite life there is actually quite hard <laughs> but I think I'm a bit of a masochist actually and I love the feeling of of being lost I love the feeling of sort of going inside of myself and having to draw on other sort of um, aspects of my creative process and somehow that makes the work a lot clearer or it makes it a lot sharper in terms of that there's a sort of urgency to to get that to get it out and I think of London as kind of work and I think of Australia as home so yeah when I'm there I'm really working yeah I mean I've always been back I've never I mean I've never not been I've always been coming back and forth for for a decade so I'm not yeah I always find that quite sort of hard to reconcile in my own mind. It's like, where are you? Like, where are you at the moment? So, um, you know, the, the great thing is that, uh, you know, Oxford has opened so many doors. It's given me the opportunity to be able to initiate projects and to be able to continue working in the UK. And, um, I, you know, I'm really fortunate that I've got work there. So, I mean, I think I will just go back there by virtue of the fact that it's just my work has just taken me there and I, I enjoy working. So, if I'm working that I'm happy so that's for me is kind of like you know um yeah I, I don't, don't sort of ponder too much the concept of where am I based or where am I not no. based because it's a, where the opportunities are but I think it was a good question mm. now Dasha wanted to ask a question so just just taking up um, Jean's point about you are you your experience is unique Aussie indigenous boy finishes up at Oxford. I'm curious, where did you go to school? And uh, where were you born? You know, how far did you go? And just as a separate question, who are, you collect who are the collectors? Are they Europeans? Are they many English? Where do they come from? Um, yeah, well, I was born in Gawler, which is just outside of Adelaide. Um, my father was in the RAF. He still is in the RAF. So we grew up all over the country. We sort of grew up, you know, in some of Australia's premier <laughs> um, towns, <laughs> and um, yeah, so I went to um, I went to school all over the country. We stopped moving when I was about 15, 16, and then um, I did my undergraduate at the University of Southern Queensland. Um, then I did my honours at RMIT in Melbourne. I did my masters at RMIT in Melbourne. Then I went to Das Arts in Amsterdam. Did my masters of theatre. And then went to Oxford, so it's been a really wild, <laughs> sort of uh, ride. Yeah. Um, and it, what was the other, in terms of collectors or who are the collectors? Uh, in what countries or yeah. France, America, Germany? Yeah. Um, Yeah, I'm just thinking of the collectors that in Europe and in Europe and the States who sort of buy my work. But yeah, probably Germany, France, and. Um, other Netherlands and also um, um, some certain parts of Asia. Taiwan, Gaoshu. I mean, worldwide, yeah, really, yeah, worldwide. Over, yeah. uh, it's quite remarkable. And I think it's good to add there for most people, 
perhaps would know this here, but you know the, uh, there's, there's a group of indigenous artists who've grown up in urban environments, not the group who've been in the outback, you know, mm -hmm. it's a sort of different group altogether, who have just suddenly broken through so many barriers now. Uh, most of them have been alumni of SCAF. Brooke Andrew is one. Uh, Christian, of course, with this show. And also Jonathan Jones. Mm -hmm. Yes. So it's, it's uh, suddenly there is a huge interest in Australia. Well, we know that. And then when people think of Australia, the... Um, outback art or the art that comes from far away and distant uh, uh, remote places there's been some discussion about whether it should be there or shouldn't or it should be ethnographic or you, I don't, God knows why I mean Jenny you're smiling but there have been discussions about whether it should be allowed into the Cologne Art Fair or whether it is contemporary art. Whereas with these guys, there's no argument. They are artists. They're Australian artists. So it doesn't have any kind of question mark over it. They're artists that happen to have an indigenous background, the same as the artists here who happen to have a, I don't know, Czechoslovakian background or, or anything else. Yeah. I've actually sort of, I sort of find my outsider-ness has always been something that has been a, a strength rather yeah. than a, a, something that I've, people always ask in London, people always say, where are you from? And I tell them I'm from the outback. <laughs> <laughs> and I am, because my dad's family's from Bark Holden, and when you go out there, it sort of says, welcome to the outback. And, but I sort of play on that because I think people sort of love that. They're like, where is this place? I want to go there. Um, so, and I think my experience has also been quite different because I grew up with a very traditional sort of childhood. I grew up with a lot of our traditional ideas and a lot of our rituals intact and that sort of manifested and, 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 and reconfigured in my work. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's sort of, it's sort of operating in, with both of that sort of my own sort of like art historical you know, Western art training, but then also bringing in elements of that, um, of my sort of traditional um, heritage as well. Mm. Come on, how much time have we got, sir? Six o'clock. It's six o'clock now. Should, one more question. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Who wants to ask the last question? It's not, it's not a pressure. There's a question there. From Toowoomba, right? Yes. yes. Well, I think it's fitting. Well, don't big up the last question too much. It's just really, Christian, when you do come back to Australia, do you actually get back to country? How often? Yeah, yeah. I haven't been back home yet. I sort of feel like I sort of haven't been home yet because I feel like when I go back to where my family's from, I sort of recalibrate a bit more than I do when I'm sort of in Melbourne or Sydney because I don't have a sort of the same sort of cultural connection to those, those places. But... Um, um, yeah, no, I haven't been back, but I usually go back, yeah, once or, I've been back, most times I go back with my dad, which is a 13-hour drive from Brisbane, but you can get there in 11 hours if you floor it. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, we do go back, yeah. No, because it was interesting to me the way you were talking about how you engage with Pitt River in a funny way brought back to me the way I've spoken to other people about how they engage with country. Right. Just an observation. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think there was a sort of... Um, there were sort of elements of that sort of collection that sort of emerged and became really powerful sort of guides, I guess. Um, there was definitely one image that became the sort of 
quintessential image in the collection. It was an image of a, a South Australian Aboriginal man. It was one of the very earliest daguerreotypes. And that image just kept re-emerging to me in, in my dreams. When I thought of the Pitt Rivers Museum collection, it was the first image that I thought of. And he became like a sort of a, a guide for me in terms of working with the collection. I sort of thought, I don't want to research this collection from the point of view of me as the researcher, because I think that assumes something some sort of um, authority, and I, I don't feel like I have that. I wanted it to be a much more um, sort of visceral and um, spiritual relationship to the collection. And I coined this term spiritual repatriation and was talking about the idea of how, you know, art can actually create a new space within the museum. It can create a frame of reference, but it can also empower contemporary Indigenous people and can actually add to the, the multiplicity of the Australian experience as well, which I think is really important. Can we just finish on one thing, and that is uh, Christian had his works hanging in Oxford in the dining hall. I need you to tell that story. <laughs> yeah, well, that was sort of directed by my college, Trinity College, which is one of the sort of constituent colleges of Oxford. It's one of the, the earlier, the, the original colleges. Um, and they invited me to have a survey show in the dining hall, and they took down the, the, the portraits in the dining hall, and I had a survey of my work for two weeks. Um, and um, they took down former prime ministers, cardinals and saints. And it was the first time they'd allowed any individual sort of artist to do that in 450 years. So it was, um, yeah. <laughs> Christian, of course, who's one of our national treasures, I think we have to <laughs> Please enjoy the drinks and the opening.